ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Jodie Cooper's first love was skateboarding and with a bunch of other kids in her hometown of Albany, Western Australia, she helped raise money to build the first skate park in Australia, the Snake Run. But once Jodie discovered surfing as a teenager, she fell in love with the whole scene and she really loved being better than the guys she was riding waves next to. Jodie turned pro at 19 and became a trailblazer in all kinds of ways. She was the first woman to regularly brave the big waves in South Africa and Hawaii and went on to win 13 major championship events. She loved most of life on the pro surfing tour, except for the bullheads. Hi, Jodie. G'day. <laughs> so you Classic. grew up, as I say, on the southwesternmost point of Australia. What yep. was it like being a kid in Albany in the 60s and 70s? Um, it was absolutely awesome. We were absolute rat bags. Um, you know, having that open space back in the 70s, you know, we all had a lot of room to move. We had, a, you know, there wasn't a lot of rules and regulations back in those days. So, yeah, it, it was a real sense of freedom being brought up in a coastal country town in southwest Western Australia. What's the landscape look like? Um, beautiful. It's a really stunning place. Some of the best beaches in the world, white sand beaches, beautiful, huge granite headlands, a lot of open space, a lot of beaches that face different directions. Back in the day, it was a sort of like a wheat, sheep kind of town. And yeah, there was just lots of room to move and a a lot of places to hide and get up to mischief. So it was pretty cool. (laughs) Bit like Huckleberry Huckleberry Finn sort of style. <laughs> Who were your main partners in crime when you were getting up to that? Probably my two older brothers and, and you know, the different gangs we used to hang out with. Gangs saying the term, they were like little kid gangs, you know. It was like fighting over who had the best kind of packet of biscuits or something like that, you know, who got the cream biscuits or who had the dry nieces or something. But, yeah, it was great. It was just the local kids who lived in in the street, all my cousins. How did your your family expand in 1975? I was brought up with two brothers and one sister and then when we were older, my parents decided to adopt and so they went down that pathway and, of course, 75 was the end of the Vietnam War. So they decided to uh, adopt uh, a war orphan and so my little sister came in a shoebox when she was nine days old and she was on one of the uh, last planes that left Saigon before it all was taken over. So, yeah, it was pretty exciting for us. Amazing. Yeah. It's a big decision for your mum and dad to take. Yeah, well, I suppose so. Um, I think I've always been a big family and mum's always been a professional mother, I've, I've always described her. And, you know, she just loves kids and dads love kids too and I just think they wanted to, you know, they were financially stable and they probably felt there was room enough for more and so they thought, well, let's get a little orphan. How big a, a part did sport play in your life at school, Jody? You know what, sport played an absolute huge part in my life. Um, it just, I was addicted to sport, I, hyperactive. Like I, I just, I came from a sporty family. Hand-eye coordination for me was something that just came naturally. So I suppose I just excelled in it. And even even as a young girl, I used to play cricket in the playgrounds against the guys and kick the footy and like... Did and, you get pushback from, from other kids around that, being a girl? I wasn't very girly-like, put it that way. So, like I said, I was kind of brought up by my two older brothers. My two brothers, I had a younger sister and then when she was born, my mum just handballed me over to my... (laughs) I was brought up by my two brothers and I just got punched and kicked and locked in cupboards and, you know, totally picked on, you know, brother abuse (laughs) for, for years. And so to keep up with them, they were four and five years older than me and I was, you know, like when I was five, they were nine and ten, so... Man, I had to like really learn quick and keep up, otherwise I was left behind. So I just learnt really fast. You were keen on AFL as a kid. What did your mum think about that? Yeah, well, I was, a, like I said, I loved every sport and um, I used to go to football every weekend with my, my dad. My brothers played football and my dad was a really good football player and, you know, we'd all go to the footy on Sundays and watch him play and have the cars parked facing the uh, the, the, the ovals and I remember I was just a footy addict and I used to kick all the, you know at half time and quarter time you run on the field and you kick the footy 
and I used to boot the ball as good as the blokes and I wanted to play AFL football. This is back in the 70s, you know, and um, that was just when my mum put a foot down and said, my dad's name's Peter and she was just like, Peter, that's it. If She's not playing football and she's not allowed in the men's club rooms because I always used to want to go into the men's club rooms at half time and, like, oh, I couldn't work out why I wasn't allowed in there. It was pretty funny. <laughs> Something very exciting was built in Albany when you were a kid. How did the snake run start? Yeah, really interesting. Um, you know, of course, the snake run was the first skate park ever built in the Southern Hemisphere and it was in little old Albany, you know, not not in a city like Sydney or Melbourne or something like that. But it started from uh, this really cool dude, this really cool guy called Jim McCauley who he was an older guy but, you know, thinking back he probably was – only 40, and we all thought he was this old dude. Anyway, he had a couple of sons and they were sporty and, and oh, Jim McCauley, really cool guy. He was right into little athletics and I used to go away with him because I used to be in little athletics as a kid and he was just a real true champion for, for kids and, and like getting kids into sport and stuff. And, you know, it was in that era where skateboarding just really skyrocketed and it was like this cult cross between surfing and skating. It was this real cult. And, you know, companies like Coca-Cola are advertising it and, and, and things like that, using it as their campaign. And, and, you know, I suppose there were so many kids just riding in the roads, riding in the streets. And, and this is back in the day where we didn't have a lot of ready-mixed streets. They were all made of this really weird bitumen that had rocks in it. So we all, we're all like getting... It's a bumpy ride. We were losing a lot of skin <laughs> left, right and centre. It was a bumpy ride. And anyway, he just came up with this whole concept that we're starting to raise money to build a skate park and that's what we did and we all did our little and bit to do that. As you say, if it's the first skate park, I mean, you wouldn't have even seen a skate no, park exactly. It was bizarre. Guys. It's like, you know, we know it's, it's so true. It was like we'd, we'd had seen it in America... And, you know, in that stage, people were riding, swim, breaking into play, people's places and, and you know, riding, skating swimming pools and stuff like that. And um, all those skate parks were in in America and even in Australia, like, people were riding car parks and stuff like that. That was a skate park. You try and find sa- f- some shopping mall or some car park that's got an angle or something to it and and, yeah, that's where kids would skate. So how did you go about raising money? Um, lots of different ways, really, lots of sort of different fundraisers. But one I can remember that I played a part, which is really hilarious, we had these funny little markets that we'd run in this old old sort of building and the markets, we had a flary floss machine and they put me in control of the flary floss machine. That's like putting an alcoholic <laughs> in at Dan Murphy's. Um, and looking after the, you know, the supply. So you were just spinning that sugar all <laughs> Yeah, the, and it was the really long. old Ridgy Didge one where it was like, <laughs> looked like an old washing machine that span around you had a stick. And, yeah, I probably ate more than I sold and I'd go home pinging off the walls probably. <laughs> but, yeah, so we sold flurry floss on the end of this big stick and it was it was a win-win. It was a win-win. win-win. <laughs> well, somehow, despite your best efforts, you did make enough money yeah. uh, to eventually open this this skate park, the Snake Run. What do you remember about the day it opened? Oh, fa- absolutely fantastic memories. Look, I spent my whole life up at that skate park. I look back at pictures of myself and, man, I was this skinny little twig, little brown leg thing. I used to have to, like, pretty much skateboard 10Ks to get to the skate park. What do you mean? Well, I lived like 10Ks out of town and um, my mum was home doing her thing and I'd either ride my bike or I'd, I'd skateboard the whole way there and then I'd skateboard, skateboard all day and then I'd skateboard home. So, yeah, it was crazy. I spent all my life up there just obsessed, you know, with it. Absolutely loved it and, you know, it was a great kind of like social thing, you know, all the older boys would go and... Not many girls skateboarded at all. I think my cousin who lived across the road, she would come over every now and then and we used to do a little bit of skateboarding together, but it was 99% blokes and me. And <laughs> where did you get your first board from, do you remember? Um, I remember oh, I remember stealing my brother's skateboard years ago. It was the old Surfer Sam sort of thing and the wheels were like rock hard if you... If you hit a bundy, you'd you'd go head over heels and you know fly over the handlebars. 
But then um, these polyurethane, I think, wheels came in, which were a lot softer. And I think mum and dad just bought me a skateboard and it had the, the like the plastic deck that was kind of like had a lot of flex into it. But interesting enough, and I always say to dad, mate, this is one you let go. But uh, he started making, he made me a skateboard deck that was curved. This is before anyone was doing curved skateboard decks. And he got the idea because he was making his own skis. So he'd get plywood and glue them together in a mould. And then I remember one day he goes, I can make you a a skateboard with a little kick on the back if you want. And I was like, oh, yeah. And he made it for me and he he moulded it with a little kick and then he put some sandpaper on it, which was like, oh, my God, you know. And I think now that we could be billionaires. You could be on the air of this exactly. skating family exactly. fortune. And this is in the 70s. So <sighs> I know, damn it. What well, could it be, Jodie? <laughs> so you're so into skating, other kinds of sport. How did you first start surfing? Well, it was kind of like that progression because I hung around skaters and a lot of the guys, they all surfed. You know, it was that really crossover and... And a lot of them were a lot older than me. And my brother started getting into surfing. And um, to me, the image just looked so cool. Like it just looked like not a sport but a lifestyle. And and back in those days, all the hottest guys were surfers. You know, let's face it, they all had long bleached hair. And I don't know, it just looked really intriguing. Your hormones led you yeah, they to started the waves. To, yeah, <laughs> it did at that age, yeah. And what are the waves like in, in that part of pretty Australia? Pretty powerful, pretty crazy. Like the main town, there's no surf in the main town. There's one beach. In fact, they're actually building an artificial reef there now because of the fact that we've got heaps of swell, but uh, it doesn't have any shape. So I kind of grew up surfing six-foot dumpers. So I really learned at a young age how to get flogged. <laughs> um, you know, there'd be like you know, four of my cousins, my brothers sitting on one of those giant tractor tyres just getting heaved over the falls on a six-foot closeout. And um, so I just sort of learnt the basic skills of rips and, you know, learning to be confident in the local town. But a lot of the beaches were sort of out of town, like 10 to 20 k's out of town. So it was really hard to get to all our local beaches. So luckily my brother... We get on really well. I'm born on the same day as my, my eldest, one of my eldest brothers, and um, he's five years older than me, but we're on the same birthdays. But he took me surfing to start with. So he'd drive you out? Yeah, he, well, he went, and the mum sort of basically blackmailed him that he had to take me, you know. So he, he had his driver's license. So I sort of just tagged along with him, and then, and then, you know, and then I sort of, when I was 16 and a half, I, got, I had a boyfriend. I, I wonder about my parents sometimes. My boyfriend was 20, so, and he had his driver's license, so that was and they handy. And they were cool with that, were they? <laughs> they were so cool with that, <laughs> yeah. And um, so that was good. So, and he was going to uni when I was like 16, 16 and a half, when I first learned to really get into it. And um, he was on, obviously, summer holidays because uni would, had stopped and I was on school holidays because I was doing about do year 11. And, yeah, so we, I went surfing for two months every day, so it was brilliant. And the skateboarding that you've done, Jodie, like does that develop certain skills or a kind of fearlessness that you can transfer onto water? Um, look, it, to be honest, it's, it is really different because skateboarding you've got a variable that doesn't move. But, yeah, sure, you know, hand-eye coordination, balance, yeah, definitely there is a crossover there for sure that it helps and the skateboarding skate park and skate ramps, you are coming down vertical um, surfaces. Uh, obviously, it it can hurt a lot more if you're sort of riding a hard surface. But, you know, surfing is probably one of the most hardest things you'll ever do. Like it's people, like I've seen Olympic athletes, you know, all sorts of, you know, people who've tried to surf and it, it takes months to be able to do it. And which part? Which is the hardest bit it's to It's just that... Um, it's the unpredictable. It's the ocean. You know, like nothing is the same. No two waves are alike. There's rips, there's currents, there's an energy pushing you in towards the beach. You've got to try and paddle out, slaps you around the ears. Then you've got to try and balance on a surfboard. I mean, it really is, it's got so many elements to it. But the good thing is like, you know, a lot of people that do it, like I remember 
just flapping about in the white water and just loving it. Even though I was getting pounded and just I couldn't get out the back, I still loved it. And that's why people keep going with it, you know. It's, what, were, what were you loving while you there in the know. white water? It's weird, isn't it? Just the challenge of it. And then when you get one, even if you're surfing the white water and you stand up, it's that. It's just the most amazing feeling when you're just riding on top of water. It's epic. Were there many other girls out there when you started? No. I was the only girl surfer in my whole town and I, I, I sort of didn't really see another girl surfer for quite some time. Uh, I knew I knew there was a couple kind of in Perth and maybe one in Margaret River, which is about a five-hour drive away. But we were very – we were as rare as hen's teeth. You know, there was probably – five of us in the whole state of Western Australia. So it was really very rare, and especially in my hometown. Yeah, I was the only girl that surfed. And how did the, the guys who were surfing react to you? You know what? The guys were insane. I was so lucky, like such beautiful guys. Like I have nothing but, you know, oh, good thoughts and, you know, they were so encouraging. They were always They would always pick me up and take me. They, you know, there was a time where... I was at high school and I didn't have much money and they'd always pay for petrol and, you know, and they always supported me. And, like, when I was learning, if it was too big, they'd say, no, 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 you've got to stay in the whiteboard. It's too big for you out here. And, and in the days where it was a bit smaller, they'd encourage me to come out and go, come on, come on, paddle, paddle. And, you know, like, whenever waves were coming, they'd say, it's your wave, go, go, go. So, you know, they were incredible. You know, I just can't thank them enough. As as was my hometown was with my surfing. I always thought if I ever won lotto, I'd go home and, I don't know, have a big party and <laughs> invite them fill, all. Fill the, the snake run <laughs> yeah, with booze. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Surf movies were, were such a big thing in, in that era. Did you get the chance to see any of them and imagine what surfing might be like outside of Albany? Look, it was so rare. Like, you know, we'd have... We, we didn't even have a, have a cinema in Albany. We had drive-ins, you know, so we'd all go to the drive-in, which was pretty classic. We all love that. And But, you know, so we had a big town hall and then maybe twice a year, you know, there'd be a guy taking a, a, a surf movie around the country, you know. It'd be like, like the Leyland Brothers <laughs> version, but it was a surfy guy, you know, and he'd just take it from town to town and... Man, that was the best. It was just like Christmas, you know, like we'd all all the we'd all be frothing and, and all the surfers would come from hundreds of miles to go to this town hall and we'd all be, I don't know, hilarious, you know, we'd all and it was just such an amazing event. And that's the only time we really got to see what, you know, our idols were doing. There was a couple of there was a surf mag magazine, tracks magazine kind of thing, but other than that, we never got to see it. What was the kind of atmosphere like in that town hall as you were oh, Larry, around? <laughs> there was lollies being pinged left, right and centre. You could get hit in the back of the head with not a not a fan towel because they were too valued, but like an old, like mint, I don't know, mint leaf or, a, you know, one of those cheap lollies that you got at the bottom of your lolly bag. Yeah, it was pretty raucous actually. It was, and it was so good because it was this really, you know, diverse you know, there was a lot of there was the, the old guys, you know, the, you know, the the older tier of guys, and then there was like the probably the twenty year olds, and then there was like the full, you know, younger like myself, you know, who was probably sixteen, sixteen and a half, and uh, and so it was a, it was a real crossover. And then you know we'd have a half time intermission, and we'd all bolt down to the local lolly shop, and yeah. Restock. But they'd get smashed. <laughs> <laughs> they'd have to have eyes in the back of their heads keeping up with it. <laughs> so once you, you finished high school, where did you head first off with your surfboard? Well, um, a lot of I decided by the end of high school that I was going to be a pro surfer. That was it. There's just no way I wasn't. So I kind of decided to um, travel around Australia for a year because you know, being from Western Australia, this is back before internet, back before, I mean, we all thought we lived in another country in Western Australia. Like, you know, this is back when, you know, everyone had their type of beer. Like everyone had, I mean, I I didn't even see an avocado. I'd never seen a mango (laughs) and avocado. So we always wondered what the hell happened on the East Coast, you know. So it was a real common thing for like, 
Western Australians when they're young to travel around Australia or go to the East Coast. And it was just one of those pilgrimages that we all did, you know. So I did it with a mate of mine and I needed to get out of town. I was kind of just sick of that small town mentality. I just felt like I needed to see what was going on out in the big bad world. So yeah, I travelled around Australia. Well, I didn't get it all the way around. I got to Noosa as far as the where the surf stopped and that was it and then turned around and came back. Was but, the attitude to surfing or girl surfing different on the East Coast? Um, yeah, I really, I really felt that was like, it was like that era of like puberty blues kind of thing. And I never really got that because I was like, wow, like what's that all about? Until I hit the East Coast and mostly, to be honest, in the big cities, you know, in the country it was fine because guys had probably never, and by that stage I was a really good surfer. So, you know, I could really hold my own and a lot of guys have probably never seen a girl that could surf that well because we were very dispersed minimally throughout even the East Coast and most girls that surfed, surfed in cities. And so when you hit a country area and they saw that you could surf, they were pretty flabbergasted actually. They were like, wow. That must have been a great feeling. Yeah, that chick can (laughs) surf. So they were pretty cool. It wasn't until you got to like Sydney or the Gold Coast or sort of those sorts of places that you, I discovered that full misogynist, you know, male chauvinism that really shocked me actually because you know, it was just I wasn't used to that. I was used to the exact opposite. So it was a real kind of eye-opener for me. You, you say you knew already that you wanted to be a pro surfer. Who gave you advice about turning pro? Well, at the start, no one really. I just was one of those kids that went, right, I'm just I'm just going to make this happen. It's just got to happen. I'm, I don't know what I've got to do, but I'm just going to invent it. But, you know, I, I, Pam Burridge was always my idol. Like I remember I think we were, at, we were a very similar age. I think I might even be a year older than Pam actually. And I had the full fan, you know, she was like my idol. Like I, I remember because there wasn't a lot in the media about women surfing and even at a news agency when you picked up a surf magazine, it was extremely rare to see any information. But Pam Burridge at the time was, you know, Australia's little favourite icon. Like, and I remember seeing an article of her in, in Australian Women's Weekly and well, that she's was... she's made it if she's oh in the Women's gosh, Weekly. she has made it all right. And I just was just like so in awe of that, of that girl and I thought, I want to be just like Pam Burridge. The funny thing was is when I travelled around Australia, I stopped in, I went to a couple of amateur events and did well in them and then met some Sydneyites and then went to Sydney and then I hung, and they sort of adopted me. It was really cute. They took me in under their wing and let me sleep on their couch and, you know, and I went surfing with them. And then they were, they, and of course Pam Burridge lived in Manly and that's where my mates were that I'd met. And I was like, do you know Pam Burridge? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we surf Pam all the time. She's a mate. And anyway, I got to meet her and, oh, my God, it was just like one of the highlights of my life. And then we ended up becoming really good mates, actually. And so I really, because she was on the tour at the time, she was still very young. And so I just picked her brain about it. And then I continued on around Australia and I started adventuring in a lot of the amateur events. Back in those days, amateur and professional were really separate. You had to either be amateur or professional. And if you went in a professional event, you couldn't go back. And then I just looked at it and thought, well, this is pretty stupid. Why would I be amateur? Because I, if I'm going to win an event, I might as well be professional and make money out of it. So I kind of left all that. Did you do some fundraising back in Albany? I did actually. Well, that's when I decided to sort of go home uh, after a year and gather the money together and then... Back on the fairy floss machine? No, that was, I hung up my flurry Floss machine <laughs> boots. Uh, I did pretty much everything else though. Everything from, I worked in a fish canning factory for a while and hated that. And I, anyway, I got out of that. And then we did a lot of fundraising. We used to have like these surf events, local surf events, really grassroots, like, you know, like I think, I'm sure I'm allowed to say it, bro. I think a few of the blokes smoked joints behind the sand dunes back in no. those days. <laughs> shocking me. This is not I what know. I imagined at the surf world. I know, I know, Jody. I know. And it was really just a fun thing, you know, and we'd all be out there and um, we'd have a little, back in those days there weren't, weren't a lot of four-wheel drives and my mate had a four-wheel drive and my auntie would be selling cups of hot soup and 
Milo and she'd bake cakes and, you know, of course they'd have the munchies and they'd eat everything. <laughs> and then um, we'd have these surf events and then we'd ended up, we'd have what we used to call a rage. So it was just a party in a, out, in a hall which was out of town because then we couldn't get in trouble. We could all sleep in our panel vans and our cars and the local community would donate things like a meat pack or the pub would donate a couple of kegs and then a local band would play. And we'd have these great big shindigs or these rages and, you know, it'd be five bucks to get in and you get a meat pack. And so we did things like that. And then we also did like lamington drives and we'd, you know, pretty much barricade the footpath and, you know, make them <laughs> buy the lamingtons. And so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of fundraising like that. And also, you know, my uncle and aunties gave me money and, and then the actual town itself gave me some money. So, you know, like I said, I just... Cannot thank the people of Albany enough. You know, they were so cool. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Jodie, after you'd raised all your money in Albany, you headed off to start surfing overseas. What was life like on the tour when you started out? Like, where were you staying? Pretty much on anyone's couch that would allow me. Yeah, I did a lot of couch surfing. The great thing was, like, this is back before the whole Paul Hogan put a shrimp on the Barbie campaign and, like, Americans absolutely loved Australians. Me and Pam would be in, in in California. We'd just be sitting in a cafe eating breakfast and I can't tell you how many times like the waitress would come over and say, those people over on that table have just paid for your breakfast. And we'd be like, what? And they would just say, oh, my God, we just love your accent. You know, and we'd be like, I'd have conversations with people for 15 minutes and they'd say, at the end of it, so do you speak English? <laughs> you know, like, it was just, and that's a true story. Like, I, was, I mean, I've got a really heavy Aussie accent, obviously, but back in those days, it really had a Aussie twang, hey, and just crazy. It was so funny. You had this incredible trajectory once you turned pro. You were voted Rookie of the Year and then within two years were ranked number two in the world. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, I mean, I came out of the blocks pretty fast. Like I qualified to make the uh, main events in my first year. I think I nearly won the world title in my second year. So that was a pretty big thing. You know, it was a big step up. Were you able to be friends with the women you surfed with or were you competitors? Like was there too much rivalry to be close? I had my mates. For example, Pam Murridge was my good mate, but we had the most healthiest full-on rivalry once you get in that water, man, that hooter goes, it's just eat or be eaten. <laughs> get out of the way. But, um, and on tour, you had some friends on tour and, the, and there, there were other competitors that you kind of, you know, it's just natural in life. It's like workforce. You like some people more than others and some people you don't really like, you know. What about the organisers of the tour? I mean, how supportive were they of women's events back then? You know, if, if anyone hasn't seen the movie Girls Can't Surf, go go see it because... It'll give you a good indication of what it was like. Um, pretty hard. Out of a, a whole pile of ning-nongs, there was, or buff heads as we call them, <laughs> there was a handful of really cool guys who were in the sport promoting surfing that really could see the positiveness of promoting women surfing. So they all weren't idiots. So that was great, but but the majority of them, yeah, they, they really didn't, throw us a crumb at all. So it was really difficult. We were thrown out in the worst conditions and we were just kind of used as fodder to fill the gaps. And, you know, they didn't see the potential of women surfing. And, it, yeah, it was really, really hard. So you were kind of the sideshow to the main event. Yeah, we were the sideshow. And we were allowed to be there if we shut up, basically. If you just shut up, do what you're told, paddle out there when the wind turns on shore, don't squawk too much, don't fucking flap your wings, you know you'll have a position here. If you start yapping on too much, we'll pull the pin and you won't be allowed to even come. So, And it's only a couple of years ago that prize money was made equal between men and women. That certainly wasn't the case when you were competing. No, 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 not at all. 
Yeah, it's only been a recent thing. It's only been the last, what, probably five or six years, five years maybe, that that happened. I mean, obviously as the years went on, that, that gap was smaller and getting smaller, but definitely in the 80s and 90s, it was huge, the gap. Tell me about your first big win then in America. What did you do with the money that you started to make from oh, surfing? Oh, my God, my first big win. That was, I'll never forget that, 1985. There I was, wall to the back. Back to the wall, I should say. Um, Huntington Pro was, and I'm, you know, the IP Pro. That was like winning the Wimbledon. That was on par. It was like one of the biggest events you could win in surfing. I kind of went from rags to riches. I literally, no lie, probably had about five bucks, Australian bucks, which is probably $2.50 American in my pocket. And I won it. I won a car and I won 4000 US dollars and... That was like like when the dollar was probably 59 cents the dollar. So I was just like, yeah, it was insane. What, what did you do with the money? Well, I sold the car because I didn't live in America. And then my dad called me up and he goes, there's this really good block of land. Buy this block of land. Thanks, that was the best Dad. thing I ever did. Yeah, ever, but, ever, he made the mistake about the skateboard, but he was right <laughs> yeah, on it exactly. <laughs> with the real estate. This, this is the good old days when you could buy a block of land for 8000 bucks. <laughs> so I did that and then I used the rest to get to the next contest. So did success change life on tour for you? Were you now kind of famous, Jody, in the surf world? I think that event did change things and I think that was a real big event for me because it, it was that confidence booster. And it sort of, you know, it made me realise I'm as good as the rest and I can do this. And it was so it was really, really cool. And, yeah, I think it just definitely put me on centre stage, winning at a big, big event like that. And how did that suit you, your, your personality? I loved it. Yeah. It suited me right to the ground. I wanted to wear that suit the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I think I look good in that suit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, of course I wanted to be the best surfer I could possibly be. I wanted to be the best in the world. But... You know, I was a middle child. I, I wanted to be, I wanted lots of praise. The best revenge for a middle loved. child exactly. ever. <laughs> yeah, like I need a lot of attention. <laughs> um, I was lost in that family. No, I wasn't. Um, yeah, of course, you know, I, I loved what came with it. I've been lucky that I've come from a beautiful family that instilled great morals within me and I, I, you know, I always had that thing. I would never want fame or anything like that to go to my head. So I kind of didn't want to become an idiot or anything like that, but I definitely, I liked what fame, a little bit of fame brought you. It, it got you out of out of a long queue and got you to front line a few of the times, you, you know. You had the sweet spot of fame, yeah, it exactly. sounds like, like free it's, stuff, jumping yeah. ahead of the queue, but yeah. no nightmares. Exactly. Not too many. I've, I've, I had a few... When I lived in Bondi, which I did for quite a period of time, in the highlight of my career, yeah, it got a little bit funky. Like kids had sort of nicked my T-shirts off the line because they knew where I lived and they'd they'd push their faces up against my window where they found out where I lived. A little bit, but, you know, it was a really good learning aspect for me because I kind of learnt a lot how the world worked and how the media played with things. Everything that you read is not necessarily true. When you were surfing on the the tour, what were your favourite places? Where did you love competing? Let's see. Well, different places for different reasons, you know. Like I really loved going to southern France. Like, my God, that place is paradise. We all loved it. Kilometres of beaches with beautiful beach breaks, gorgeous climates, you know, the obvious, the wine, the baguettes, you know, everything, the food. Um, and back in those days, hardly any surfers. So I loved Southern France. I loved Hawaii, obviously, because of the power and the quality of the waves. You know, I, I loved going anywhere that had a good quality wave, you know. Those huge waves in Hawaii are one of the things that you became so well known for, for surfing, those waves that are called the most dangerous in the world. Why do you want to surf something like that? Well, good, good point. A lot of people <laughs> have asked me that question. A lot of people have sh- shaken their head. I think being from Western Australia and it's super powerful, like there's some places in WA that are on par with Hawaii with the power. I think I was brought up in a lot of powerful surf. So my style of surfing really got better when I was in more powerful surf. That's one point. Second point is in Hawaii where we were in Oahu, it's a small little rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and it's within a 
two-kilometre radius is 15 to 20 world-class surf breaks. And in that era of where it was really hard for a woman surfer to get any acknowledgement or, you know, pats on the back from any of the pro surfers or anyone, the one aspect where you could was if you could surf well in big waves, you kind of got some prestige from them. You know, they'd say, wow, that chick's really good. That really strove me to want to do really well in big waves. Would you have to psych yourself up to go out into them? Like if you're there on the shore or paddling yeah. out and you see these massive things, yeah. what's going through your, your head? Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. But, you know, let's put it this way. Like you don't just wake up one day and go, I'm going to paddle out and surf a 10-foot sunset. You, you progress to these things. And it's one of those things you either like it and do it or you don't. And there was a lot of world champion surfers, male and female, that hated surfing the big waves in Hawaii because they, you know, had a fear of it. And I don't blame them because it's really scary. And I think for myself, I just, I don't know, I just kind of taught myself how to deal with that fear, taught myself how to block it out. I trained for it. I, you know, I, I used to paddle out on the really big days and maybe say, oh, that's huge. And if I'd say to myself, I'm just going to go out and I'll sit in the channel and if I get one wave, that's great. And so I just would work my way up to it, you know, and that's sort of how I did it. When you're catching or riding a wave like that, Jody, what's going through your head? Like do you have time to think or is it all over in a, in a second? I think you've got to do all the work beforehand. Like you've got to be got to be able to hold your breath for a while. You've got to be physically fit. You've got to have the right equipment. And the thing is with riding big waves is he who hesitates fails or is lost because you've got to commit and then once you've committed, you just go because you have that split second, oh, I don't know about this. That's when you get in trouble when you'll go over the falls or you'll hesitate. You've just got to back yourself and then just give it 200%. And what, the next thing you know, you're up on the beach. It's all over. Well, hopefully, <laughs> in one piece. <laughs> but plenty of times I didn't and I just cartwheeled down a, you know, 10-foot wave and got absolutely annihilated and, yeah, come up spluttering. Did you have time and, and space for relationships when you were on the tour? Uh, I did, not, not at the start, when I was probably about 23 and then I was with my partner, yeah, for 10 years throughout my whole career, yeah. And were you able to be open about dating other women back then? No, no. So that was another really huge thing that I went through in the prime of my career, which was really hard to deal with. And that was another thing I had to balance, you know, trying to win a world title and then, you know, realising that I was probably gay. You know, I'd been with men before that, boyfriends. But, you know, I just kind of thought, nah, something's not quite right. But I kind of felt that I was drawn towards um, women. And so that was a pretty big thing for me to have to deal with because, you know, you've got to deal with it yourself and then obviously act upon it. It was, yeah, very, very not well accepted at all. So it was sort of hidden at the start. Then I met uh, my partner and I decided that things had to change because I couldn't live a lie anymore. It was it was that. But then what happened was um, I left my diary by accident one day in one of my fellow surfers' rooms and they read it and then that's kind of how they found out and then they kind of used it to black, not blackmail me but kind of, you know, then I decided, oh, you know what, I'm just going to come out because I'd rather be free and um, – I wanted to come out because I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to show the world that we're all not a bunch of freaks. We're just normal people. Was the stress of that part of what made you want to leave the circuit? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I just got sick of being around such a closed-minded bunch of people, basically. Um, even though it's, it's only been the last sort of 10 or so years, it's really gone gangbusters with acceptance, really, to be honest. You know, like everything when it came to finding sponsorship and it was just like, oh, you know, it was really difficult because you're that gay girl and, you know, people stereotype you and, you know, I had people saying that I was a man hater, all these ridiculous things where men are just so important in my life. I absolutely adore them, you know, and they're like some of my best mates, guys, so... 
So there's a lot of all that stereotype stuff that I just got sick of. Yeah. There still must have been a really big decision to walk away because I can't imagine there were very clear pathways for women surfers once they left the circuit. Yeah, so true. Like it was, it was literally like when I left pro surfing, it was like hitting a brick wall, doing 60Ks kind of thing, you know. I knew I needed to leave it because I wasn't happy. To be honest, surfing was probably my first ever love, true love, like deep love, like, and I was addicted to it. I loved it with everything, everything. And I kind of got to a place in my life where I just wasn't even loving surfing anymore. I fell out of love with it and that really saddened me. It really made me sad. So I thought, go, why be unhappy? You know, go find something else that makes you happy. So I probably left it too early really when I think about it because I was still like in the top six I think I was in the world. And then, yeah, when I left pro surfing, there was there was nothing. There was no no life raft, you know. So what did you find yourself doing at first? I actually went on the dole for th- about three months just to find out because I had rent to pay and everything like that. I mean, you know, I, I worked in cocktail bars. I was, you know, a couple of friends had nightclubs. So I worked, you know, making cocktails and pulling beers and all that sort of stuff. And when I was on the dole, unemployed, there was all these different courses we could do. And I went to this course where it was a uh, it was a bush regeneration and landscaping course. And there was this awesome woman that took her. She's still a friend to this day. And she was just teaching a bunch of us, you know, how to pull weeds out and identify the different species. And I really loved it. And then at the end of it, she told me that the council were looking for some people if they wanted to start up a little gardening business. And if you had a flyer that they would put it in their council letter drop box because their idea was to keep elderly people in their homes. So one of the services is odd jobs and gardening. And out of like 30 people, I was the only one that pulled my finger out and I've still got the flyer to this day. It's pretty cute. <laughs> what, Jodie Cooper will come and cut your lawn? <laughs> yeah, <is> that... <laughs> exactly. Uh, and pull weeds out. And I was living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, so there was a lot of real cross-section of people, a lot of um, people who fled the World War II, the camp, prison camps and stuff like that. It was unreal. Like, I loved it. And I formed some relationships there who were dear friends and I were good friends with them until I went to their funeral. I formed some great bonds. You know, some of them became so close, like, you know, like I was their daughter kind of thing. And, yeah, it was awesome. You'd been an athlete all your life, but how did gardening do you in physically? <laughs> well, I ventured into just not just pulling out weeds. I got a little old lawnmower and then I couldn't really afford a ute, so then I had an old Valiant S-Series car and the, the boot's the size of most vehicles today. So I was lugging my mower in and out the back of the of the boot and just, pick, I think, picking up the, the lawnmower and twisting and putting it in the boot, I ended up doing my back, and like, a, really bad. And then I kept gardening on top of it and I've, I was always born a kind of strong, really strong person um, my dad's renowned for being super strong and I take after him. And um, so I would be, be picking up big, big boulders and doing really stupid stuff. So uh, anyway, I ended up hurting, adding the discs in my lower back and um, I had to have back surgery. So I stopped surfing for three years, which was a very big thing in my life. Um, to not be able to surf. And I was sort of hobbling around in denial thinking, oh, it'll get better, it'll get better. But then it did, and I started taking painkillers like like lollies, and then I met this really cool doctor, and he goes, you know what, I'm not going to prescribe you any more of these. You're going to go and get a CT scan, and that was probably the, the best thing that ever happened to me because straight away they could see that I had done some serious damage to my lower back, and there was no sort of question I was one of those candidates that had to have an operation. So I had the operation, and it was the best thing I ever did. It went well. Yeah, it went. It was a miracle. It was Unbelievable. So three years away from surfing, how yeah. did you find start finding your way back into the water? Just slowly and it was like a challenge for me, you know. It was like, what? What do you mean I can't surf? I'll prove you wrong, you know. So it took me three months and I was back in the water, you know, just surfing straight. I couldn't do any turns. For months I wasn't even allowed to lift anything above my waist. I wasn't allowed to put dishes up in a high cupboard or anything like that. So once again, it was a really another real big challenging part of my life. You know, it was another part of your life where you felt like, 
life came along and hit you over the head with a big lump of wood and said, you know, there, give that a crack right now. <laughs> Get up from that one. So I just sort of dusted myself off and just started slowly and, yeah, just worked my way back at it. And it was unreal because by the time when I got, when I healed and I got back, I was surfing better than I ever was. So it was, it was awesome. How often do you think about sharks when you're out in the ocean? I try not to think about them, thank you very much. I block them out of my head. Um, well, what what happened one day when you were surfing out on your home break? Yeah, well, a few years ago, I've forgotten how long ago. It would be a while now, probably about 12 years ago, I think. I got nipped by a small shark out front of my place at South Golden Beach. Nipped with shark? That's not the verb well, that I'm I can say nip because like, it, that's the wrong I, word. I didn't lose my hand, you know, like just what, what big happened? ashes. I was surfing out front my house. It was an absolute beautiful day, middle of the day, so it wasn't on dusk or dawn or anything like that. And a mate of mine was out from California and we'd been surfing all morning and the wind came on shore and I thought, you know, I'm going to go in, but that it was so lovely and he's used to surfing such crappy conditions. I thought, no, I'll stay out. So we stayed out for about another 45 minutes and then I just finished a wave and I was in the section of the ocean where there's like a gutter. It was like a deep section where the wave finishes, but you kind of haven't hit the shore. And I just lied down on my board and put my left hand in to take the first stroke and then I felt this, obviously it was, the shark came from underneath me and just latched onto my hand and just yanked me off my board and bit into my hand. And then, I mean, I knew what it was straight away and because I didn't even see it. I didn't even see the attack. And it was just like they say, you know, it came in from underneath. But I pulled my hand out. My hand was all puffed up like a football and it was bleeding. And then my friend looked across and I was screaming, shark, shark. So he saw it and he saw it swim away. So, look, it was, I was just really lucky. It was only a small shark. It was probably three to four foot or something like that, he reckons. So, you know, it was just a baby shark, So, which I'm not bragging. This is one time I'm happy to have no bragging rights about how big the shark <laughs> small was. Small as possible. Yeah. The smaller shark you but, got. But, you know, it was really terrifying. It was probably one of the most terrifying things that I've ever happened to me. It was yeah, really scary. Did it knock your confidence about going yeah, back in? Yeah, it did. It did. It, it certainly um, floored me for a bit. But once again, it was another one of those things that's happened that I went, okay, here we go. You've got to get back in the water. So literally with a rubber glove on my hand, because I had all my hand damaged up, within that week I went back down, I went swimming, and I, I got back in the water as quickly as I can to just sort of get over it. You said before, Jodie, that by the time you'd come to the end of your time on the tour, you'd sort of felt like you were falling out of love with surfing. Are yep. you back in love? Are you infatuated again with this thing? Oh, 600%. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like a grommet again, like a, yeah, well, a grommet. I love it. It's just, it's a part of my life. It's just, if I don't have surfing, you know, like, look, I can go days or weeks without surfing if I have to, you know, because of some sort of situation and whatever, that's fine. But if I can surf every day, I love that. It's a part of my life that I just have to incorporate in my life because it's, people think surfing is a sport. It's it's just so much more than that. That's why you're seeing so many people take up surfing because it's, it's your best mate. It's like you're, it's like doing yoga. It's meditative. You know, you meditate while you're waiting for a wave it's your social hour. Like I go surfing and you meet people, you have a little chat out there while you're waiting and you don't even know them. It's got so many elements to it, you know, and then there's the fun factor. You're surrounded by nature and then you're in the ocean, the salt water, it's, it's got all those minerals. So yeah, it's just, um, you talk to most surfers, if you don't go for a surf for a while, you become a cranky bitch like, <laughs> or a cranky Bastard. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. it's, it's just, it's so good for you. You were back over on the West Coast surfing not too long ago. What happened? Who did you run into on the waves over there? It's the second year I've done this. Last year I went back and went up north, Western Australia, up around the Ningaloo Reef area with my sister and my nephew and my nephew's partner and, and they surf and we camped for three months up there. Three months? Yeah. Wow. Just, oh, it's just absolute paradise. Anyway, we did it again this year and um, I was up there and I was surfing out this 
cool little spot and there was about, you know, 15, 15 of us out there and sitting out the back and we're having a conversation because it wasn't really big or consistent, so a lot of time for chit-chat. I caught a wave and I noticed there was this little grommet on the inside, this young girl, and she was surfing and then I thought, how cool, because she was ripping. And I was thinking, wow, she's awesome. And I, I, I got this wave and I was paddling back out and then from about 30 metres away I heard this little voice like with this funny little croaky voice, excuse me, are you Jodie Cooper? Like that. And I was just like, I looked across and I went, yeah. She goes, you're my favourite server. I'm probably doing the worst voice. You'll hear this and go, I don't hear it sound like that. <laughs> anyway, and then I'm going, really? And she goes, she goes, I recognise you. I recognise your voice. Ah, voice and I go, to voice. My voice. She goes, yeah. She goes, you're in my most favourite surf movie. And I go, oh, what's that? And she goes, girls can't surf like that. And she goes, I've seen it 103 times. <laughs> And I just pissed my pants laughing. Hey, I was just like, no way. And I was going, no way. And anyway, we just become mates. We just surf with each other. And then I'd get a wave and I did like this cutback and she was in front of me and I sprayed her and then she paddled over to her dad and goes, I just got sprayed by J.D. Cooper. It was so cool. And then she went in and then I was like, oh, my God, where'd she go? I've got to meet this girl, you know. I was totally fanning over her because she was so fun and she was such a little grommet. She was just ribbing. And I, I think she's like 11, right, and her parents were out surfing with her. And then I, I came in onto the beach and I said to my mate, did you see where that little girl went? And she goes, oh, I think she went up to the car park. So I grabbed my phone and I was, I was running up the beach. So I wanted a photo with her, you know. As I was running up, she come running down the beach with her mum and we just met. And I'm, I'm like can I have a photo with you? And do you mind if I put you on my Instagram? She's like, well, can I have a photo with you? So anyway, we we had photos together and swapped and we follow each other on Insta now. And her name's Ruby. She's awesome. That's such a cool story. Yeah. Jodie, I've loved talking to you. You're as good as a swim in the ocean. Thanks so much right. for being a guest on Conversations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.